And Peter says, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Point number one, the man that God blesses. The man that God blesses. Of course, as you can imagine, the man that God blesses is harmonious, right? He's devoted to being harmonious. Peter gives this command to all of those in the Christian faith. All of you, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. We illustrated this by the fact that when you hear a group of people singing together and they are singing different notes, but it sounds good, it even sounds beautiful, it's because that one is perhaps singing the melody and others are singing harmony. Maybe they're all singing harmony, but either way, they're not singing exactly the same thing, but they're singing it together, and what they are singing together, although it's quite different, it works and it's beautiful. And when someone attempts to engage in harmony and he doesn't understand how to do it or he doesn't know what the harmony is and he goes way off and it doesn't work and he's out of key, then that's bad and you can tell. It doesn't sound right. In fact, it's honestly painful, right? My dear friend Clayton Erb, who has been the music minister at Grace Community Church uh, for well over three decades, leads the seminary choir. It's just a bunch of seminary guys who happen to become a choir for a couple of hours on a, on a Sunday for graduation. Does a, an amazing job of getting these men to, to sing and sing well. And without fail, every year during those uh, two two-hour rehearsals, he will say, now guys, listen. Does anybody know Clayton, by the way? Just raise your hand if you know Clayton. Okay, this is how Clayton would say this. He says, now guys, listen. Now some of you, some of you just need to give me more video and less audio. Why? Because they're tone deaf. And they can't harmonize. They can't even melodize. Point is, they can't sing the melody. They can't find it. Don't be the person who can't find the melody and can't find the harmony. Be the person who is harmonious. That's the man that God blesses. The second thing that God blesses is the sympathetic man. The man who willfully, intentionally considers other people. There's a willing desire not only to be like-minded or harmonious, but he truly has a deep desire to sympathize with others. I told you last week that this means that he is sharing fellow feelings. We're a very, very doctrinal church. And sometimes the word feelings doesn't feel like it fits, but it does. The church who is doctrinally devoted but unfeeling is not doctrinally devoted. You see what I mean by that? What is doctrine? Doctrine is what the Bible says. And if the Bible says that you and I must be sympathetic, that means you feel other people's pain. Because you intend to. You might not have the gift of mercy that others have, but you are commanded to be sympathetic. God also blesses brotherly love. The brotherly person, this adjective, really being intrinsically related to uh, those times in the Scripture where you see the word love, and the, the Greek term from which it is translated is Philadelphia. Phileo, love, that brotherly love, that natural love that you have, that I have for John and Steve Barnett, my two brothers. Tammy Barnett and Suzanne Gawhoff are my two sisters. It's easy. I love them because I've known them my whole life. I'm the baby, so uh, I've known all of them my whole life, and they've always been good to me. It's easy to love them. Well, they haven't always been good to me. That's a lie. <laughs> I was their servant. What am I talking about? But I love them naturally, and you know what that's like, even though you have 
difficulties with your natural biological siblings. You have also have a natural love for them, and this really is what this is. It's, it's in you. You know, once you're in Christ, you're, you're in your brothers and sisters in Christ. You become one with them. You are a unit. You love the body. Christians love Christians. Dear friend of mine in seminary, a seminary student, just a godly, godly man. This guy was uniquely godly. He had engaged in the Mooney religion and you know, weird stuff and was dabbling with Buddhism for a while. And God saved him. And he uh, was you know, one of these guys that really throws himself in you know, completely to things. And so for six months, he lived in a shack in Long Beach. Six months, all he did was read his Thompson chain reference Bible. That's all he did, and eat, and didn't eat much. And so he really came to the place where he knew the Bible very, very well. And I had the privilege of being in seminary with him for a short time. I lived with him for a year. He just had a tremendous impact on me. Incredibly intelligent, incredibly devoted to hard work in the Scripture. Very humble, one of the most humble people, really, I think I've ever known. And I remember him saying to me one time, when I had said about my friend Clayton, you know, the more I get to know Clayton, the more I love him. Because he's so lovable. I mean, he's just gracious. He's just a dear, dear soul. And my friend Vince, uh, Vince Bradshaw is his name. He's now a pastor in Sacramento to Russians. Vince said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but isn't that true about all Christians? Don't you, the more you get to know them, the more you love them. And I said, Vince, no, not there. I don't love people. I love Clayton because he's easy to love. And it was less than a year later that God actually saved me. I was a hypocrite. I had a double life. I was an empty shell. I was a whitewashed tomb and a pretty good one. Pretty convincing. And um, God used comments like that that are derived from the Scripture. Christians love Christians. They have brotherly love for their brothers. How does it, wow, think of it. How does a person claim to be in Christ and not love those for whom he died? Oh, friends, please don't deceive yourself. Please don't deceive yourself into thinking that this statement is okay. Okay, you've heard it. You've heard it, I'm going to say it. This statement, this statement. You've heard it, you may have said it. I know you've heard it. And maybe you haven't been alarmed by it, but you should be. When someone says these words... You know, I love Jesus, but I can't stand organized religion. Can I just be clear? Jesus died for organized religion. And the more biblical term is the church. God shed his blood, Acts 20, verse 28. For whom? Acts 20, verse 28. You know the verse. I heard many of you say it. For whom did Christ die? The church. He gave his blood for the church. And we are brothers with those for whom Christ died. Now listen to me, please. I plead with you. If you've got a problem with somebody in this room, or if you've got a problem with someone who's clearly in the body of Christ, you've got a problem. You've got an eternal problem and there's a resolution for it. But if you can easily sit in this room and be angry with me, or be angry with the person you're sitting next to or across the room or the person you're hiding from. And by the way, our church is not yet big enough to hide from anyone. And the lights are too bright in here. We can see each other. Well, I'll just work in the children's ministry every week. No, you won't. Christ died for the brotherhood. God... Blesses the man who is kind-hearted. He's compassionate. He's soft. I didn't say weak. You know, mature Christians are not weak. You know that. They acknowledge their weakness because they have weaknesses. But the maturing Christian is increasingly strong. I don't mean by that impenetrable or difficult or brazen or unbending. No, the mature Christian is humble. He's humble. He's soft. He's kind-hearted. Ephesians 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? How? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did, how did God forgive you? Did he look into the future from eternity past and say, Oh, that guy right there, he's worth forgiving. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my forgiveness to him because he's earned it. 
I remember years ago as a school principal, I'd had a young teacher. It was her first year teaching. And loved kids, loved teaching. It was her first year. It was kind of a struggle. It always is. And uh, she was having a real struggle with a particular student. She came into my office. She sat down. She said, we've got to talk about, you know, this kid. And, you know, it's really getting difficult. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I can take it anymore with him. And we talked through the situation. And I said, it seems to me right now that the thing to do would be to grant him grace. And she said, oh, but Todd, he doesn't deserve grace. She looked at me, and I looked at her, and we both had this funny look on our face, and she goes, oh, I know. Oops. You don't deserve grace. That's the whole point. It's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. And with whom do we establish or grant? To whom do we give grace? Well, whoever it is, they don't deserve it. And so we must be kind-hearted in order to give that. We must be compassionate. And then also, the man that God blesses is humble in spirit. I told you last week that humility is the crown characteristic of the Christian faith. Sadly, unfortunately, the King James translates this word as courteous. No, the person in the drive-thru at Wendy's, when you're getting impatient, is courteous. The humble person is low. He's low. He thinks nothing of himself, or I should say he thinks rightly of himself. He has a right view of himself. He doesn't look back on his Christian experience and say, I chose Christ. He doesn't arrogantly proclaim that he somehow had something to do with his own resurrection from the dead. How foolish. He's humble as Christ is humble. I want to read to you this quote again from John Calvin. That man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God nor proudly despises brethren or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. 1 Corinthians 13 is a real good display of humility. It's the love chapter, but it it shows the person who doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? He's patient, he's kind, he's gentle. That's the humble person. I think the most theologically comprehensive and narrative description of humility is in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. My boys have this down in terms of verbiage. What'd you do wrong? Ah, I wasn't kind to my brother. What should you have done? Well, I should have considered him as more important than myself. That's right. Oh, can I plead with you to minister to my five boys to be humble? That they would be humble. And you say, well, Todd, there's no hope. You're their dad. <laughs> and I say, well, then help me. Can we together be humble? Can we choose every day to consider each other as more important than self? To start the day by saying, today is the day in which I will best glorify Jesus Christ by believing that I am less important than everyone else on the planet. Think of how your day would go much differently if you and I were to do that, if we were all to do that. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, that's what you're called to. You're called to be obedient and to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know people are being crucified in the Middle East, maybe this very moment. Maybe this very moment people are being crucified in the Middle East. Why? Well, primarily because they have refused to subject themselves to Islam. But secondarily, and maybe equally importantly, because they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute, that's what Paul just said we're supposed to do? Now, easy for us to say, sitting in here in our nice, comfortable chairs. That's humility. 
being willing to give our lives. But that we would consider ourselves unimportant. You must be important to me. You are. Every person in this room, every person in the church, every person in the world should be important to you. In fact, more important to you than you. This is why the command, love your neighbor as yourself. You love yourself. It's not something you have to plan to do. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that in in the later times, things will become difficult because men will love self. It's a sin to love yourself. You've heard the phrase, you can't love others till you love yourself first. That's not in the Bible. There is no command to love yourself anywhere. You'll hear lots of psychology-based teachers trying to twist the scripture into the idea that you should love yourself. You should feel good about you. You should have more self-esteem. You're king's kids. You should feel good about you. But Paul says, have the attitude of Christ who emptied himself. He was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. I asked you the question last week about these attitudes, about these character traits, which they are, but they're also attitudes. They're adjectives that describe the man that God blesses. I asked you, how do we do this? And the answer was by grace. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's from 1 Peter 5, verse 10. In verse 12, he says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in grace. Be a person of grace. Be a person whose life reflects God's grace because you're committed to these five adjectives, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble that you would daily run your life through that grid at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, the end of the day. Lord, is this who I'm becoming? And if not, perhaps I'm attempting to do so by something other than grace. Peter goes on in verse 9, says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. The man that God blesses does not retaliate indeed. This phrase, evil for evil, it's a very basic word for evil. It really means bad, morally. Uh, this concept of evil here is any intentionally injurious act anything intended to harm peter is saying uh, that the man that god blesses does not retaliate in deed with evil deed the man god blesses does not retaliate in speech he doesn't retaliate in deed he does not retaliate in speech He does not retaliate with injurious conduct. He does not retaliate with abusive speech or a verbal reproach or slander or cursing or railing for railing. One version says railing for railing. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, Paul says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all the people. Remember what we said one of the primary purposes of the spiritual gifts was? Because Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 12, the common good. Now, if everyone ran their giftedness, what they believed to be their giftedness through that grid, then a lot of conduct would change. All we seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. What are we to do in the face of evil? Face of insult? Well, we're not to retaliate. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You want to be a person who does not return insult for insult? Stop talking. Right? If you don't talk, you can't sin with your mouth. With ungodly or insulting speech, you're having trouble. You say, I'm so tempted to do things that are injurious. Stay away from that context if you can. Things that are harmful. The man that God blesses is the man that does not extend injury. Interestingly, the man that God blesses blesses those who sin against him. So there's more to it than just restraining yourself, just choosing to not insult others, just choosing to not injure others in deed or in word, but actually blessing those who sin against you. That's not logical in this world. 
got to get back at people. Maybe the, the place in our mindset, in our world, where it's the easiest now to do so is on the internet. It used to be the freeway. It got too dangerous, so people went to their keyboards. And now they're heroes in their own minds because they can say whatever they want. There's no accountability. But instead, give a blessing, Peter says. Uh, on the contrary, more literally, be blessing, be praising, be acting kindly toward how? I'm going to give you three ways to do it. Three ways to bless those who sin against you. Number one, love. Love them. What does that look like? Well, we can talk about what it looks like, and we need to, but it's more important to talk about what it actually is. It's an attitude. It's an attitude. A willingness to die. Say, hold on. You're telling me to have an attitude of willingness to die for a person who would sin against me? Not quite. Actually, what I'm saying is have the attitude of dying for the person who's willing to kill you. That's, that's what we're talking about. You say, that is out of reach, man, right? That's why we trust Christ who actually did that, and we trust that he will conform us to his image that we would be increasingly willing to be that person who loves that way. John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you have love for one another? I think you do. I think you do. How is that proven, though? That's why when I asked the question earlier, what does it look like? I said, we need to answer that. Well, what that looks like is you serve. You sacrifice. In our context, the way we have attempted to codify this or organize it in a way that's helpful to you, that it's strategic, that you can genuinely get involved is in the family group environment and the discipleship environment. Primarily the family group environment. Getting to know a smaller group of people with whom you can grow in love for one another. That we as a church would be known by our love for one another. That those on the outside would look in and see, okay, that's different. This is different. This is not what I've seen before from people who claim to know Christ. Or maybe it is what they've seen before and they're seeing it again. And that's a blessing to them and that's how we should be known. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The proverb says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You ever feel like you just can't take it anymore, you know, because you know that someone, what someone is doing is transgression, it's sin? You say, I just had it. Read the proverb. It's Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, theologically, that is a reference to Christ's love, which covers all transgressions for those who know him. But it is something that you and I can communicate in our lives as well. We can, we should be, we must be becoming increasingly the people whose love covers transgressions doesn't mean you turn a blind eye to unrepentant, repetitive sin, but it does mean that you're not so concerned about how you are treated that you're more concerned about others who are being sinned against than you are about you being sinned against. I often feel like when someone is complaining, complaining, complaining about how someone is treating them, that might be a little unbalanced. On the other hand, if they're saying, you know, I'm very concerned for how this person is treating that person, it's much easier for that person to actually be objective about that but if they're just saying you know this person does this to me and he said that about me and you know and he looked at me wrong i i think um that's just focus on self but love when it comes to those things if they even are transgressions covers them covers them second you can forgive you can forgive can't you how will you give a blessing instead, rather than returning evil for evil or insult for insult? How will you be the man or the woman that God blesses by blessing those who insult you, who revile you, who sin against you? Well, first, you can love. Second, you can forgive. Matthew 6, verse 12 says to the Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14 in Matthew 6 says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. See, there's a, a, a reciprocal relationship here. The person whom God has forgiven is a person who does what? He forgives, right? Now, let's keep reading verse 15. But 
But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. The hallmark reality of the person who is not forgiven by God is that he doesn't forgive. It's the most obvious reality about the person who hasn't been forgiven, that he doesn't enjoy forgiveness, therefore he doesn't give forgiveness. Holds on to everything, or sure seems like he holds on to everything. Third, pray. Pray for those who sin against you. You can do that. Do you do it in the moment? Matthew 5, 44 But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is after Jesus has quoted, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't resist an evil person, he says. This is this this amazing passage that really turns us on our ear. It really challenges our Christian faith. He says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult, but instead bless and the way Jesus has called us to bless those who persecute us, bless those who who sin against us, is is to pray. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may, listen to this, he, he equates this with Christianity. He equates this with your Christian faith. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Really what's happening is as you pray for those who are seemingly unforgivable, seemingly unlovable, what's happening? You're proving that you are a son of God. There's an indication that you're actually in Christ. The person who won't pray for the unbelieving is a legalist at best and probably self-righteous at worst. Well, He doesn't deserve for me to pray for him. He doesn't deserve for me to love him. And why? Why are we to do these things? Why are... Why are we to not retaliate in deed or in speech? Why are we to bless those who sin against us? Well, Peter says, because you were called. Called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The man God blesses is called to be blessed. How about that? For a high view of God, so it's in God's hands. The man that is blessed is the man that God has called to be blessed. You were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. But friends, it is not the American way to follow in Jesus' steps and to suffer and to believe 1 Peter 4, verse 19 that says it's God's will that you suffer. God blesses the man that has been called. God blesses the man that he has called to be blessed. God blesses the man that he has called to inherit a blessing. Who gets the glory? God. God gets the glory. Verse 10, the one who desires life. Oh, this is a beautiful phrase. Wow, does he ever switch gears here? He switches gears. This is, this is almost odd. The one who desires life. For the one who desires life to love and see good days. And then he says some things that man must do. But for now, we're going to talk about the fact that God blesses the man that desires a good and loving life. I hope you desire a good and loving life. I hope that you don't think that being a Christian means, even though, yes, it is God's will that you suffer, that you think that you need to cause the suffering. That you need to get out there and make your life horrible so everybody will see how you just trust Jesus. No, that's false martyrdom. But you should desire a good and loving life. Life, a good life and a loving life. The one who desires life. What is this? It's zest. It's vigor. I'm not talking about climbing a mountain or, you know, downhill skiing or, or, or whatever, you know, things that are fun and enjoyable, bungee jumping or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a genuine 
deep, passionate interest in living life with abundance in the context of suffering. D. Edmund Hebert has said, with God in control, even persecution cannot make good days bad. With God in control, even persecution cannot make good days bad. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, this is Paul the Apostle, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live. You see that? No matter what the circumstances, whatever you think of, whatever the category might be, whatever the details might be, you can live, really live. No matter the circumstances, Paul does his best here in a literary fashion to give every potential scenario that one might think of as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. He, he thinks of it all. This man that God blesses who desires a good loving life desires a life that is lived well, a life full of life and a life full of love. He loves God and he loves people. And his life impacts others to do the same. He has a full life. Not necessarily a, an overly consuming schedule, but he has a full life. It's a loving life. It's a life that matters. It's a life that is increasingly spent thinking about others, starting with God and starting with others. He finds himself spending less time staring at the floor and contemplating what his retirement's going to be like and more time praying and contemplating what heaven is going to be like. He spends less time thinking about how a person treated him poorly and more time praying and pleading with the Lord to help him treat that person well. He spends less time complaining and more time praising. The man that God blesses does not speak evil the passage here tells us that the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. He does not use his tongue to damage or injure others. He recognizes that as James has said in James 3, so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue, you hear that? The very world of iniquity. That's the tongue. What a metaphor. What an amazingly effective phrase to help us. The symbolism of that. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members. It's one of our members, our physical members. It's part of the fleshly body. Not sinful in and of itself as, a, as an organ, but it is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. You know this. That which defiles you is not that which comes in. It's that which goes out. Out of the mouth, with the tongue, speaks the heart, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. So much of what the tongue is used for is to promote hell. It's to cast hell onto people's lives, to make them miserable, to deceive them, and to do harm to them. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Verse 10 goes on to say, And his lips from speaking deceit. This one who loves life, this one who has zests for life, he must keep his tongue from evil, and he must keep his lips from speaking deceit. The man who speaks deceit is a man who trusts his own lies because God's truth is not enough for him. In fact, God's truth proves him a liar. So he minimizes it by overemphasizing his experience, even creating an experience that never existed. 
This man who deceives with his tongue, when his dishonesty is exposed, he hunkers down and redoubles his efforts. Colossians 3 verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Speaking to Christians, right? The Christian laid aside his evil practices and he does not lie. Paul commands him not to lie. You've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. There's a number of things that the Lord hates, but this is a very concentrated, categorical expression of what God hates. Here we go. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes. The person whose life is exhibited in how he looks at people and what he does with his eyes. A lying tongue. Specifically, not just how he looks at people and how he scoffs at people with his eyes, but the use of deceit with his tongue. And then listen to the rest of the list. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among believers. God hates this. And as we move forward in this passage, you'll see just how much he hates it. And what he does to those who commit it. Friends, the man who lies and thinks little of it has little or no concern for his own soul nor for others he influences. He only wants the temporary pleasure of convincing others that he is great. Why? Because he fears man and what they think of him and he does not fear God. He knows he can fool man, so he lies to him. And when his lies are exposed, he goes deeper, and he pretends that he's telling the truth to some degree. He gives a partial confession, and he continues to lie. And this is a scary existence. When his lies are exposed and confronted, he does not strive to be disciplined. He simply redoubles his efforts to create better, more effective, more deceptive lies. He reluctantly and pridefully acknowledges what everybody already knows. He feigns nobility then with lip service by saying, hey, look what I confessed when everybody already knew it. He feigns humility with slumped body posture and self-deprecatory comments such as, I'm just a terrible person, but he doesn't mean it. He's only hoping to manipulate the emotions of onlookers by persuading them to believe that he couldn't be as bad as he says he is but he does nothing to further expose the lies that have yet to be uncovered. As long as he can keep them hidden, he will. It would be too painful to uncover them. He'd rather hide them and be considered righteous than to uncover them and experience Christ's righteousness. He'd rather escape the consequences of his lies temporarily and risk eternal consequences. He'd rather be exalted, keeping his lies covered by his own baloney, than to be redeemed by his lies being covered in Christ's blood. And here's the issue. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The man that God blesses doesn't deceive. The man that God blesses turns away from evil. Verse 11 says, He must turn away from evil if he would love good life. If he would love having a loving and good life, he would turn away from evil. It says he must keep, and this is an aorist imperative. It's a command. It's a command. What command? That he would keep himself from evil. Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The man that God blesses turns away from evil. He sees it as a command from God and he deliberately turns himself away 
from evil. He does not let his feet turn to the left or to the right, but he keeps focused with his feet. He moves in the right direction. He keeps himself in the right places, and he keeps himself out of the wrong places. He's careful about what he allows into his mind, into his eyes, into his heart. Yes, he's careful about the music he listens to, because yes, it does influence him. He's careful about the preaching he listens to, because yes, it does influence him. He is careful about the people he spends time with, because yes, they do influence him. The man God blesses does good. The passage goes on and says to do good. The man God blesses seeks or looks for peace. He not only does good. I don't really have to explain that, right? You know what it is to do good. But he not only does good, the man that God blesses, the man that God blesses seeks after peace and he pursues it. If he seeks it, he's looking for it. But if he pursues it, he's striving for it. He's pressing forward for it. He's clamoring for peace. He longs for legitimate peace. Romans 5.1 peace that comes from justification with God that eliminates the enmity between God and man. The scripture says that men are haters of God. But he longs for peace with God. He's bent on it. He seeks after it, but he pursues it. If possible, Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You are to be at peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Be at peace with all men. The man that God blesses is a man that pursues peace. The man that God blesses is righteous. This is the divine response, by the way, in verse 12. Peter says, this is a sovereign love that God's eyes are on the righteous. Job 28, verse 24 says, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. I remember ministering to a guy or trying to years ago when I was in my early 20s working with this guy. He kind of had a little bit of a religious bend. He was a hard guy, though. He was had a difficult life and was trying to persuade him to trust Christ. He, um, he said, you know, I don't get it. You know, you talk like God sees everything. Nobody can see everything. Nobody can see all that's going on. So what is he doing? He's looking, he has an anthropomorphic theology. He's looking at God through the grid of man. He has a man-centered concept of God. How could God be greater than me? God is outside of us. He created us. He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. Proverbs 5, verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Zechariah 4, verse 10. The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth. So this is a sovereign concept, but the idea, listen, the idea that God's eyes are on the righteous is more than sovereignty, it's sovereign love doesn't say his eyes are on the righteous and the unrighteous. It says his eyes are on the righteous. The point is that they are especially on those to whom he has granted righteousness. I love Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To this one I will look. To this one I will give my attention. To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That is an expression of righteousness. This is a term of endearment. It speaks of God's watch care. In Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. Can anyone else really say that? I mean, can you really say that about anybody else? You know, my wife, she knows me so well. It's true. But that's not what David is saying. David is saying, you've searched me and you've known me well. You know me inside and out. You know the nuances of my heart. You know the nooks and crannies of my inner man. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. This is a sovereign love. This is God's willingness for his attention to be placed upon the righteous. You say, wait a minute. Paul, Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. This is the pre-Christ condition. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Jeremiah says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to those who have been granted righteousness. Speaking to believers. Further in Romans 3, where Paul has said, there is none righteous, not even one. In verse 21, he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. See that? The righteousness of God manifested in the life of the believer to whom God has granted righteousness, not earned righteousness, not self-righteousness. Paul speaks in Romans 10 of the Pharisees who had a zeal for God without knowledge, and it led to an unrighteous self-righteousness. They feigned righteousness. They pretended to be righteous. God requires righteousness of mankind. Mankind cannot achieve it. Therefore, he needs a Savior who grants it. And Romans 3 may be the most explicit expression of the gospel where you see justification by faith, righteousness granted, faith in Christ. Verse 22 again in Romans 3, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. He was waiting for the right time. He poured His justice out upon His Son. and Therefore, righteousness is granted to all those who believe in Him. This righteousness, which is possessed by the person to whom God looks. The person on whom God's eyes rest. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. Believing. Your life comes down to your theology. What you believe about God is, as A.W. Tozer has said, the most important thing about you. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. What's that mean? Being persecuted because... The righteousness of Christ wells up in you and you exhibit that righteousness. You're willing to stand for righteousness. Starting with your own sin. Psalm 106 verse 3. How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. In the privacy of your mind. In the privacy of the workplace. The privacy of your home. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of the Lord. Who are your eyes on? You got little children? Raise your hand if you got small children. Do you ever take your eyes off them? Not really, not in your heart. When things are getting wild and crazy, and you know, you're trying to step out and let them do something they haven't done before. Talking to a couple this morning, they're peeking in the classroom, you know, through the rainbow and the clouds and all that. I say, do that. That's why we put that there. So you can kind of look in. They don't see you, but you see them. My, one of my sons this last week was here in the building helping me do some work. He wanted to come and help and something in the truck. And he said, Dad, can I go get that? And I said, sure. And I uh, gave him my keys. So he goes outside. I'm standing around the corner watching because the key's kind of tricky to get it in there, and then you've got to turn it the right way, and do you even have the right key, you know, all that. It's like five, six keys. I gave him the right key, but is he going to, you know, get it mixed up between going out there and coming back? And I'm watching around the corner, and he's, 
trying to put it in. He's, it must be the wrong key. He's switching and getting frustrated. And I start singing. I don't know why he's singing, but he's singing and, you know, and he's talking to himself. And I'm just thinking, okay, I got it under control. I'm watching him. He doesn't know I'm watching him. And the next day he said, hey, Dad, I saw your toes around the corner when you were watching me trying to get in the building. divine response, though, of God is that his eyes are on the righteous. I'm watching my little boy. Wanting to be there for him. Wanting him to kind of struggle through it, figure it out. I said my boys all the time. Engage in the struggle. Hang in there. Persevere. Don't give up. I'm not always going to be with you to be able to figure it out for you. Figure things out on your own. I'll help you if I can. Learn to figure out things on your own. My eyes will never be off them, right? Your eyes are never off your children. How much more so with God? His eyes are on you. Father, you have given us clear instruction. And we are moved by your grace. We pray that you would help us to be people who you bless because we are harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble, that we would not retaliate in deed or speech, that we would bless those who sin against us. Thank you that we are called to be blessed. Help us to desire a good, loving life that's effective for your kingdom. Help us to not speak evil. Help us to not deceive. Help us to turn away from evil. Help us to do good, to seek peace, to pursue peace, and help us to be righteous. And last, although we didn't get to it, help us to pray effectively. Lord, we ask for your glory in these things, that your Son would be known in us, that we would see these attitudes, actions, and speech that you bless, that we'd see the things that you do not bless so that we may assist each other in pursuing righteous, God-honoring lives. Again, we ask this for your glory. Amen.